When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Now, you are gonna see what I see. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. Hey, I'm Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren, and Leo, welcome to the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 249. This time around, you are joined by filmmakers Fede Alvarez, Rodo Sayaguez, and star Stephen Lang of the new movie Don't Breathe 2. The time of release exclusively in theaters August 13th. We are massive fans of the first film and this one messes with the audience in ways we have never experienced before. It's a riveting, gory, and twisted masterpiece. All right, A symphony of vengeance and redemption. Explore the practical effects, fight choreography, the poetry of the script, and so much more, including the latest news on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie Fede and Roto are writing and producing. Episode 249 starts now. I have seen the dark shadows moving in the woods, and I have no doubt that whatever I have resurrected through this book is sure to come calling for me. This is Fede Alvarez, and you're about to open the Book of the Dead with the Boo Crew. Failed. The gun is in my hand. Sorry. I'll make it next time. You almost got me, didn't you, boy? We had a lot of fun today. I could take her gun next week. No. Home safer. You're coming with us, kid. Get the girl! It's not me you need to be scared of, little girl. But the man standing next to you. Now, I don't know who he is, but I know who he's not. Should I tell her or you? Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. How you doing, guys? Hey! Hey, good to see you. And nice to meet you, Roto. All right, man. uh, We're going to go right into it with our introduction here. So joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio are two filmmaking rebels actively constructing the coolest, most inspired masterworks of our lifetimes. Together, they took an incredible indie short film they crafted called Panic Attack in 2009 and turned it into a key that inspired Sam Raimi to unlock the Evil Dead franchise for them. They crafted their stunning entry into that canon in 2013, an unrelenting experience that stands
stands on its own. They changed the way we listen to our screens with the inventive calls series for Apple TV Plus earlier this year and are currently in the lab creating an all-new experience into the world of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Their latest is a sequel to their seven-time award-winning Don't Breathe from 2016, a movie that redefined cinematic tension and gave us reasons to be terrified of a turkey baster. It is Don't Breathe 2 exclusively in theaters August 13th. We are honored to welcome its creators and for one of them, his very first time as director, Roto Sayaguez, in the return of Fede fucking Alvarez. Guys, it's so good to see you again. And what a movie, yeah. man. Wow. Well, first of all, yes. we got to say, we are such huge fans of the first one. I know we've talked about this before. We've we've got some props from the first film. I heard that yeah, on the radio, we, you motherfucker. I don't know. How do you have... Yeah, yeah that, that's one of, one of the tank tops. And from, I heard he has the keys from the house. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. And we got... Uh, <laughs> We got that's the so keys cute. from the house, the blind man's keys from okay, the house. You gotta tell film. me, how did you get that? You got, I mean, I'm not gonna send anybody. There was actually, there was actually a, a, a memorabilia auction a few years back and uh, that was there and we had just seen the movie we got the stuff we went back to the theater we saw that movie probably three or four times in the theater you guys yeah, we loved it so much and when we this one for them. I mean we have one thing the thing that matters obviously we have a <laughs> we'll make <laughs> you an <laughs> offer for that it's just so strange like uh, I tell you like you, when you finish the movie it's, it's always the same like you rap and when you rap you like everybody hug each other and it's like oh fuck it's over and, and everybody's gonna walk away all you you know you're just talking about okay are we are we drinking something tonight? No, everybody's leaving again. And then it hits you. It had happened every time. And I go like, wait a second, I should go to the prop table and pick something up. Because when you finish making the movies, you always think no one is ever going to watch them. <laughs> Usually by the last day, you're like, what a turd. <laughs> no one's ever going to watch this movie. So let's just go home. So you never think about picking something up because they might be memorable eventually. At least I was, you know, at least I have enough clarity to, to pick up the turkey baster. And we have the Evil Dead book as well from the original, from Evil Dead, um, from our Evil Dead. But, oh, um, it's I beautiful. That those things are around and you have and we have the hammer from this movie as well. We have the hammer from this Oh, that's awesome. Amazing. Well, we got to say, story-wise, right off the bat, as huge fans of the first one, where it drops us in in this, it encourages instant active participation. It makes us question everything. It's very immersive in that sense. It's very unique. And it's incredibly disarming because everything looks right, but nothing feels quite right. So talk about designing that experience for us and the decision to withhold information and keep us wrapped around your fingers. It's all about the character, you know, it's like, it's who do you root for, who you don't, who you hate, who you love, who you think deserves to die. That, 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 that's always great storytelling. Kind of lame storytelling usually, you know exactly who you're supposed to root for, you know exactly who's the bad guy off the bat. That usually means you know exactly how the story's going to end, uh, because usually good guys win. So there, there, there was, that's what we always try to do. I mean, the first one was all about, you know, we introduced you to this, frail frail old man he's blind and you feel oh i love the guy poor guy and then when he has a girl in the cellar you go like oh, i'm not sure i like him anymore <laughs> but then you turn out that girl kill his daughter and go like oh god well then well maybe and then you find out what it, so it's, it's really us really always fucking with the audience trying to take you from one side or another and show you that life is complex and uh and maybe hopefully make you feel that sometimes when you judge someone you might not have all the information to really judge that person. And sometimes you, when you love someone, you might not know some dirty secret that motherfucker has, <laughs> but you're loving the wrong person. So 
life is quite complex and i think good stories show you that and this movie was they did we want to do that again and at a different level but it's 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 really it, it sticks with that idea of um showing you characters and and just showing you facts about them scene by scene that challenge you and uh and make you feel wow so then this where is gonna go you know if this are not the good guys if this is not the where how this movie's gonna end and it'll keep you there till the end that, that's really what we try to do and Roto, what was the experience like being at the helm of this world that you've already been obviously creatively immer- extremely close to, but this time in the director's chair? Can you describe what it's like to be able to get your hands truly inside the story in that way? Well, it was, it was uh, above all, a lot of fun. And I felt, and it felt very comfortable because this is a story that we've been working on for so long. We made the first movie together. I knew Stephen Lang, uh, part of the team that worked on the first Don't Breathe, worked on this one too. So uh, you know, the first day I was sitting there and it felt familiar. Everything felt familiar. It just, it didn't feel like I was doing that for the first time. You know what I mean? And so it was great. I can't, I can't imagine a, a better, a better movie for me to, to start out as a director. So that, in, 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 the, in those regards, it was perfect. Then of course the challenge, you know, because the, the first movie put out the bar so high, you go like, Oh, it's not going to be easy to please the fans. Right. But, um, but very quickly, I tried to, to get rid of that noise in my head and just focus in, on making the, uh, the, the story uh, the better way possible and the most entertaining, the most fun, the most shocking, the most tense and intense. Um, and, and that was it. It was, it was a nice, it was six months during the pandemic. It was crazy. Um, but, you know, I, I had so much fun, you know, doing all these things on the set, you know, it doesn't get better than that. It's just like playing, you know, it's like, it's like, it's your inner child being allowed to come out and play every day, you know, and job. So it's like, woo, this is great. Yeah. The first movie was such a masterclass in anxiety inducing filmmaking. Uh, but this one puts the blind man and Phoenix uh, played by Madeline Grace into some intense situations. Uh, what was the most challenging scene to shoot? I think that, that, that long shot at the early in the movie, that tracks, you know, uh, that tracking shot when, when, the, when the guys invade the home, uh, it lasts, I think, like six minutes. And it was inspired by a shot, a similar shot that Fede did in the first movie, you know, and the camera creeps into the house and discovers the whole house and pinpoints all its elements and tools that are going to play out later in the movie. We did something similar only, you know, because it's a sequel, it needed to be a little bit bigger. So it's longer and there's more action in it. But it was very challenging because, you know, the space is very restricted. Uh, camera has to go to the upper level and then again to the floor, to the, to the first level. And there's the, all these actors doing this crazy choreography and needed to feel tense to be scary and suspenseful. So that was that was quite a challenge. You know, it took a long time to prep and it took several days to shoot. But uh, and we also did that the first week, which is crazy. You know, my first week directing a movie is like, all right, day two, we're going to do the one. It was it was crazy. But uh, fortunately, it turned out really, really well. And I'm, I'm very proud of of the result. And I, I have a lot of fun too, staying at home. <laughs> for the first time in our like very long collaboration just do this <laughs> and just getting daily at home it's like good job brother that, that single shot turned out great <laughs> like, if it works if it works it was great go on 
Go get him. The practical effects in this movie are epic. What was your philosophy behind the gore? I enjoy it, you know, and, and I like to see it. I mean, the it's fun if you see it when you're shooting it, right? That's that's the whole point, right? If you, if you grow up wanting to make movies, wanted to make horror movies because of that, and then when you show up and finally you make one, it turns out that there's no, nothing is practical and you're not going to do it on set. What's the point? You know, it's, it's boring as fuck. So, uh, you know, and this is also comes out of Fede's uh, instinct uh, when he was doing Evil Dead and he decided that everything had to be practical and it had a huge payoff it looks it looks real because it is real in a way so we there was no way that we're going to do it any other way so i was like you know again first first thing i, I remember fede was there when we started prep and fede he was there for for a couple of days and he someone showed up and, and, and we're like okay we're going to do so we have the green screen if we need it and fede said something like in this dojo we do all it's kind of a philosophy with Pedro Luque and uh, the DP on this one and also the first one that there's like when someone suggests a green screen it's like get that thing out of my side <laughs> <laughs> there's no there's no green screens because it crazy extends to 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 avoid them yeah which you know it's a lot of fun it's w- way more fun but it also is it, it, it's a, it's hard work because I, I realized that early on, you know, you do that practically. And then when you want to do uh, another take, the whole set is soaked in blood <laughs> and you have to take like three hours to clean it up and then you new wardrobe and everything. So it's it's uh, very demanding, but it pays off. So we decided to go that way. That, 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 green, that uh, the greenhouse head smashed. The best, the best. Yes. Oh man, yeah. I was cheering when I saw that. I was like, what? Yeah, let's go. Did, did anyone at any point intervene and say, "Oh, that's a little too far"? Then you had to cut some. I can't imagine you having to cut something. Everything we saw was <laughs> pretty damn was, intense. Dude, I'm sure there's bro emails yeah. at some point that we don't read. Nice. Didn't get that one. Yeah. Spam box. The thing is, it's so much cheaper to do CG. Yeah, in this it's quicker, you save time on the day. Yeah. So everybody cheaper. wants to do it CG. I mean, so, not everybody, the producers and usually they, they, you know, people that have common sense <laughs> wants to do it CG. But, uh, but then you push and you go like, no, let's, let's, let's build a dummy and let's just beat the shit out of it, you know, and then and, and it should be full of blood and blah, blah, blah. And that takes, you know, the producers go like, oh my God, okay, okay, we'll do it. And it takes a month and then a lot of money just to create that. But then when you see it, it's totally worth it. It's a few seconds, but it's so worth it. <laughs> so, so the big question is, do you have a continuation for this story in your heads set to go? I mean, obviously, if you tell you too much about it, it was spoiling a lot of how this movie ends. But um, um, I think we're going to wait till, you know, the weekend the movie comes out and see how people react to this one. And uh, we definitely have ideas um a clear idea of where where uh, you know, a following movie could go my you know you never know if it's going to go forward or backwards um but uh we definitely want to keep telling stories about 
not just the character, but this universe, the universe of Tom Brady is so interesting because he's so complex and it's, it's not even the real world, right? It's, it feels like some post-apocalyptic America where, you know, nothing you see and it feels normal. Like there's no, uh, you know, it just feels so strange in a way. And that's what makes it unique. It just allows you to remove yourself from society and just put all these characters on the on, on some sort of Western of the law of the strongest and uh, everybody made their own laws and their ideas. You know, there's no cops in the world. Don't breathe. Like just the law, the convicts, they have no place in it. It's just as whoever has the strongest argument that seems to win. <laughs> that's, that's what's interesting for us. It's like, it's just, it's just people reinventing society somehow after everything has failed. That's how it feels. So, so, so I think it, it, it's a very interesting world to keep telling stories. One last question. There was a rumored test screening of Texas Chainsaw. Can you tell us any updates about the planned release or if any additional footage was filmed after that? I got to tell you about the planned release, so I know what that is, but uh, you know, I would let uh, uh, the studio announce that. But um, there's a... Uh, yes, we, 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 we played it actually a couple of times. There was, there was someone online that said it didn't go well. I don't know what screen he was on. Uh, the one that I was on was amazing. And uh, I think David Blugger did a fantastic job. Um, all we know, you know, usually when you tested, which is the few screens that we did, is as you guys know, uh, you know, you get a score, right? You get a score in these movies. And it's score as good as the first, uh, as this one, which I think is better than Don't Breathe 1. It's quite as good as this one. So that, that tells you something. And the audience, really, it was a blast to see it. I can't really can't wait for you guys. I'm so excited. I mean, yes. the story level, at least, uh, you know, Chris Devlin worked eventually in the script, but the story level, it started just as Evil Dead started. I mean, the both of us thinking, okay, well, what, what can we do with this character in this franchise? And, um, and we, and we, we you know, we take it with a lot of respect for, for the legacy of the first movie. And we always did that with Evil Dead as well. And, but also we're aware there's a new audience out there that is, might not love it or doesn't know nothing about it, doesn't know anything about it. So we need to make sure that, that they can enjoy it as well. And that's how the, the story was crafted, right? So, you know, you, you, you'll have new students, but I I'm, I'm really excited about um, what's going to happen with that movie. Oh, so are we guys. Well, that's our time. Yes. Thank you so much, Roto and Fetty. You guys are the best. Yes. Thanks for making Don't Breathe too. Yes. The Boo Crew will be right back. This is the movie that Rex Reed called the most horrifying motion picture I have ever seen. This film is positively ruthless in its attempt to drive you right out of your mind. This is the horror movie to end them all. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from New Line Cinema. Rated R. No one under 17 admitted without parent or guardian. Here we go. Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studios, a returning guest to the show, an impeccable storyteller whose unforgettable and passionate approach has brought him a Tony nomination, over half a dozen theater awards from the stages of Broadway and accolades from the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy and Horror, among many others. A career as an actor going back to the Oscar nominated twice in a lifetime, the Emmy winning Death of a Salesman, Michael Mann's Manhunter, the Emmy nominated Fugitive. He's 
He's been the muse of enigmatic and influential creators who push boundaries. Joe Begas, Marcus Nispel, Fetty Alvarez, James Cameron, among many others. As a writer himself with Beyond Glory, taking us on the journey of his acclaimed one-person show about eight Medal of Honor recipients. His dedication to give a contemporary and eloquent voice to the events of our past has earned him a place in American military history, earning him the inaugural Kinsley Award for the Education and Preservation of Gettysburg and the Medal of Honor Convention's highest honor, the Patriot Award. In his latest project, he is back in a role that defined unsettling cinematic tension for our generation, reprising the character he made iconic, the blind man from 2016's seven-time award winner, Don't Breathe. In the years following the events of the first film, the character lives a seemingly simple and secluded life until his past sins catch up to him. Don't Breathe 2 is exclusively in theaters August 13th. We are honored to be welcomed by its star, the great Stephen Lang. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm speechless. That was amazing. Even I'm impressed with me. (laughs) (laughs) Steven, man, we got to say congratulations on this spectacular ride. We are massive fans of the first one, seeing it multiple times in theaters. It's it's so brilliantly executed. We did not know what to expect at all from this second one, nor could we predict it. And it feels like from frame one, it was designed to completely disarm the audience and it was absolutely delicious oh what did you find interesting about the story concept of this one when you heard it and just how it goes from point a to point b well first of all i'm 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 so gratified that that you liked that you enjoyed the film as much as you clearly did uh, it makes me feel great the uh when i i knew before i read it that Fede and Roto were not going to put a script in my hands that didn't in that didn't equal or surpass the first uh, the original uh, story. I just know them that well that that would be the case. What to I did not know what to expect, but I but I certainly my expectations were pretty high and they were not they were in no way was I disappointed I felt that they honored and adhered to the spirit of the of the world that they created with uh, the, the original don't breathe and uh, there was a familiarity to it but at the same time they widened and deepened the, uh, the the concept the world itself and certainly in terms of the role that I play, they uh, they gave me an awful lot to 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 chew on, you know, to work with and to to think about and and to explore. So that's kind of where I came down uh, with it and was just really glad that we were given the opportunity to, you know, to to do it again. In the first film, you build an entire performance language for the blind man, a violent ballet you build. Now, back, lots of things have changed. The blind man has a name. The polarity has changed. It puts us in the seat of your perspective. What sorts of things did you find that you did in performance to create that compassion? As we are noticing it, not only in the decisions your character makes, but also in your approach to playing and the way you change your voice throughout the film, even. Mm -hmm. Well, in the first, in the original story, he is able to, because of the, the, the way it's constructed uh, and because of the particularly specifically because of the locale 
of the action, he's able to move through that world with what I, with kind of a ruthless efficiency. And so he's almost pure function in, in the first film. Uh, I hope, I mean, there's a human being there, hopefully. And, and the fact that he is, that you do see him as a victim to an extent is also very, very helpful in creating some feeling for the character. However, when, when push comes to shove, he is almost, he's almost pure function like a shark in a way. This film is a completely different deal. He has the events of that first film have left him basically at rock bottom. It seems to me. And uh, he, his recovery has been, uh, ha has been affected over eight years and uh, the lessons have been learned and Providence has put something into his path. This child has washed up on the shores of his life and he has been tasked and charged with uh, providing something beyond his own self, his own survival, providing support and protection for an innocent. He uh, is it a second chance? I don't know. Maybe it is. But what it really is, is it's a job and it's a responsibility. And uh, and he, he doesn't have any choice but but to accept it. But he's aged. He is uh, whatever kept his stoicism has been shaken by this kind of this providential action. So his his kind of what his his frame of reference for life is 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 undergone some transformation here. And uh, he is become very, very vulnerable because he cares about something beyond himself. And uh, and so that's the situation that we find him in, you know, in answering your question, how do you, you know about caring for him and approaching it? That's that's what it is. It's all about the weakness and the vulnerability. We you know, we, we kind of understand his his strength and his his uh, sinewy gnarliness and everything. But what he's really defined by uh, equally is his vulnerability and his his weakness and his anxiety yeah the movie is ramped up in intensity action and violence compared to the first one working with roto were you more active and involved in the stunts uh, choreography and fighting scenes in this film well there are just more of them you know than there are than there are in the in in the first one the first one there's there's plenty of stalking in this one but the, the, there was a kind of a cat and mouse uh, aspect to the first one this one is a little more balls on i would say uh and uh you sure i was totally involved with uh with with roto who had very very definite uh, ideas about how this was going to go down and basically i'm there to serve that vision uh, but I but, you know, to an extent, I'm I have to execute my part. So I was actively involved in in the discussions. I love the fights in this. They each have their own character, uh, it seems to me. And um, and and they're all very different, you know, from the, the, the fight in the basement, which to me has got an improvisational jazz quality and kind of a very dissonant quality of that, that just 
just kind of bouncing off the walls and crashing around to the almost balletic kind of quality of the, the other basement where, where the water is involved, you know, and a hammer is involved. So uh, it was a question of, of all of us, uh, including the, the stunt coordinator and the, uh, and, and the director and the cinematographer who's performing his own ballet and, and the actors, uh, my colleagues who did such a great job in this, this film as well for us to all, we all do our jobs and then, then, then just cut it. So it's beautiful. Yeah. And did. Yeah. And really the blind man has met his match in this one. He's fighting against what seems to be former military people himself. Is any of the fighting styles that you use, or is it based on anything, any seal training or anything like that? The different grappling techniques and things you use? Yeah, we went through some grappling, definitely some grappling techniques. And there are things that there are holes that that I actually don't know that that I was taught uh, to do them. And I tried to execute them, you know, as as best I could. And uh, and the other guys were all accomplished, uh, you know, very physical actors, very physical fighters. Uh, and they we all just we, we you know, you're doing a duet, you know, it's, it's like doing a dance routine. And, uh, the you know, I would always. Council guys, you know, take care of me. I'm number one on the call list without me. You know, you're going home, dude. So, you know, take care of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The plot of this movie pulls the blind man out of his comfort zone, or so we think, as he is quite the unst- adaptable and unstoppable character. As an actor in this iconic role, what about this character pulled you out of your comfort zone? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that I acting is not a, is not a comfortable business. If you want a comfortable business, you got to go into something else. It seems to me I'm most comfortable when I'm in, you know, uh, in some form of pain, distress or, uh, you know, something is is happening because it makes you feel makes me feel gives me something to respond to. It was I what pulls me out of my comfort zone, probably the affection. Probably having the, in in the you know wearing the the the, the wardrobe and the the psyche of this character to actually uh, express caring and affection for another human being and the being of Phoenix, the, my 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 quote daughter in this. That's uh, that was not a comfort zone for me in this character. It's not discomfortable for me or uncomfortable for me as a human being because you know. I have my own affections and loves for for children and stuff like that, but it's not a it's not a it's not a a, a natural place for this character to go. So uh, I would I would say that you know never take anything for granted. God will take it from you. One of the lines of the film, the poetry of the dialogue is very poignant, especially in the last half of the film. How do you feel that that element ignites? this symphony of vengeance and redemption. Um, I love that symphony of vengeance and redemption. I see this film. I see the, the script in very, in very classical terms. I see this, uh, this story, uh, the reality that's being created here. The cinema reality is bears a great resemblance to many of the, the, the kind of the Greek myths, ancient myths, which have to do with the relationship between men and gods uh, and 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 have to do with the impotence or the the power that an individual can express in the face of of, of nature, and that that to me is uh, thematically, I just find that really really 
a great way to think of this. It gets, as you call it, a symphony. I find it kind of operatic myself, the whole thing. The poetry, it is, there is a poetry to all of this. And, and that's such a, that's an amazing thing, I think, to have in, in, in this, this sort of film. But I've, I've always felt that, that, that there is, that there's this mighty mythic poetic quality. There's also, of course, there's a fairy tale aspect to it as well. And myth and fairy tale are very, very tied at the hip. You know, so it really gets into some very basic what aspects of human need and human frailty and, and human dreams and aspirations and delusions and, and hopes. So, yeah, I don't mean to sound highfalutin and magnify the themes or anything, but to me, that's kind of the way it works, you know? Mm. The locations are incredible in this film. The house... The hotel, so amazing. How much of that were physical buildings versus sets built? Most of it were sets that were built. Of course, on both the, the original Don't Breathe and on this one, there is a uh, there was some days, not even weeks, of uh, on-site work in Detroit, mostly for exteriors to capture the, the particular neighborhood. The interiors and the exteriors of the houses were either built on sound stages or on a, uh, uh, you know, on a on a location. In this film, all in Serbia, Belgrade, Serbia, and I thought that you know every every location I went to was pretty stunning. I thought the uh, the art department did an absolutely splendid job, as did the VFX department, uh, as did the wardrobe department. You know, everybody just did their job. They brought commitment to it. And I think it's a great testament to uh, to Fede and to uh, Roto that they were very clear in in their vision. And when you express your vision clearly to departments, I think they're able to deliver for you. They sure did. One last question before we go, and I'll ask it in an interesting way. After what you built with the first and, and now second film and how you flushed out this incredible character, what would be the advantages of playing him a third time? What would you still like to explore about him or a situation you'd like to put him in? I think that it, it, it I, I don't want to sidestep the, the question particularly, but I'm going to because I, I just don't think that it's, it's fruitful to, to, to think in that direction uh, at this point. As far as I know, you know, when you uh, when you have great ideas and great books, uh, you put a, you put a book uh, um a bookend on one end and one on the other end. And, and so as far as I'm concerned, that's what we've got right now, that, that each of these films is complete in and of itself. And as a pair, I hope there's a completeness to it as well. Having said this, you know, this is a character with some depth. And, you know, whether I ever approached him again or not, you know, I, 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 he, I hold him in a very special place in my heart, for sure. Very well said, Stephen. My man, thank you so much for the time, and thank you for this incredible yes. performance in this marvelous film, man. We were in it all the way. Thank you so much for your words. Talking to you.
been a joy. Thanks, Stephen. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 249. Special thanks to our guests, Fede Alvarez, Roto Sayaguez, and Stephen Lang. The time of release, their new film, Don't Breathe 2, is in theaters everywhere August 13th. Production tracks provided by Power Man 5000. Till next time, it is the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shands and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shands, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shands. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full-cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.